Welcome to Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk with people about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. On today's episode of Soundlore, we'll be hearing from Dr. Justin Patch and Isaiah Green about the sound of politics and presidential campaigns. Dr. Justin Patch is Assistant Professor of Music at Vassar College, where he is also affiliated with American Studies, Media Studies, and Asian Studies. His research focuses on sound and emotion in contemporary U.S. political campaigns, and his research has appeared in journals such as Soundings, the Journal of Sonic Studies, the Ethnomusicology Review, and the Journal of Popular Music Studies. In addition, his work has appeared in several edited volumes. His recently published monograph, Discordant Democracy, Sound, Affect, and Populism in the Presidential Campaign, was recently published by Routledge in 2019. He's also published articles on popular music education, science fiction in the classroom, and humanities research methods. Currently, he is writing an introductory textbook on sound studies for Bloomsbury Academic Press with Tom Porcello. Joining him is Isaiah Green a PhD student in ethnomusicology here at Indiana, whose work intertwines sound studies with research into belief and spirituality and their effects on the environment. Thank you, Dave and Isaiah and Amanda for having me on. Uh, I am Justin Patch. I teach uh, music and media studies at Vassar College and my primary focus for the last 15 years has been music or sound and politics, um, particularly uh, political campaigns. So uh, I've written my dissertation, which is, you know, a decade ago, <laughs> uh, was on the uh, 2008 uh, Obama-McCain campaign. And I've since written a little bit on uh, Obama and Romney, uh, my my book that came out was on the uh, the um, Trump and Clinton campaign, and I've worked up a couple of things about this campaign so far, which has been completely bizarre. I'm Isaiah Green. I'm a PhD student here at Indiana University. Um, my work focuses in on sound studies and the environment. I focus mostly on Wiccans and spirituality and how sound manipulates the world around them but I'm really excited to talk about all of this. Um, I also have, uh, on a personal level, a lot of like interest in politics and campaigning. Um, I think one of my first questions for you, Justin, is I, I know that you, your dissertation was on, like you said, the, the Obama, <clears throat> the Obama-Biden campaign um, in 2008. So I guess one of my first questions is why did you start, how did you get there? Um, and especially because in your book, you know, you, you did some work with the, I think the Texas Democratic Party. So I'm really interested how your path kind of went down that road. All right, so uh, I went to UT Austin. I started my grad program in 2004 and I did my master's thesis on the anti-war movement. So I was an active part of a group called Austin Against War for a year and a half, planned a bunch of rallies, uh, probably the most exciting part of that was uh, was the, the model that then became the um, the Occupy movement, which was the two and a half, three weeks of protests outside George W. Bush's ranch uh, in Crawford, Texas. And the way that that was executed 
using public lands and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it was very exciting, but basically the anti-war movement died out um, after, after about 2006. I mean, it really lost momentum. Uh, Hurricane Katrina hit and a lot of people who had been very active in the anti-war movement peeled off to go do um, uh, resettlement help. There was a lot of uh, Katrina refugees that came to Austin. And so a lot of them sort of peeled off to help these families get resettled and all that. And um, at the end of uh, 2006, I was like, okay, I should figure out what I want to do for my dissertation. And January of 2007 was when Bill Richardson, Chris Dodd, Barack Obama, um, Hillary Clinton, I think Mike Gravel, all sort of threw in to chow, to, to, you know, run for the presidency. And I found myself basically reading the news a couple of hours a day. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, let me chase this. And so I emailed a bunch of campaigns and I was very honest, which is what you're supposed to do. And I was like, hey, I'm an anthropologist because, you know, nobody knows what an ethnomusicologist is. I'm an anthropologist. I'm looking to do some research on um, political campaigns. You know, I've done this other work and precisely nobody got back to me. And around May, I guess, I emailed the Texas Democratic Party. And they were like, hey, yeah, why don't you come in and we'll talk. And so I go to this awful, awful office in Austin, about a mile away from where my apartment is. And it's the most perfunctory interview I've ever had in my life. And they're like, yeah, great, great. We'd love to have you. Boom, that was it. And they were the only people that said yes to me. So I was like, okay, cool. This is what it is. And it was kind of awesome. Like the, the woman who supervised me was great. Um, Texas Dems are like incredibly understaffed, under-resourced, the whole bit. And so I actually got to do a lot of hands-on stuff right away. Very little of it was music related, but um, I did a lot of work on the phone. So I was talking to um, party chairs and stuff like that all over the state. So I actually got kind of an interesting feel for how different the state of Texas is from, from end to end. I mean, it's, it's an enormous state with tens of millions of people in it that all have very, very different concerns. And it was a really eye-opening experience. Everybody at the office was super nice, um, always to me, not always to everybody else, but I, I feel like I was treated quite well. And at the end of a wild and bizarre 19 months, um, the economy is crashing. And Fight Earlman, my advisor, calls me into the office and says, you need to write your dissertation in six months. I need to see your first chapter in four weeks. And I was like, okay, what do I write about? I've been, you know, at the office, you know, eight hours a day, four days a week. And I have, you know, a whole bunch of field notes, but very little that's on music, <laughs> you know? And so I just, I, I took a week of sort of panicked looking over all my notes and being like, okay, so what are the big themes that come out of this? 
And so eventually I just start writing and it ends up being about, you know, what does politics sound like basically from being in the office? Um, and what do those conversations sound like? And how do you actually learn about politics and learn about people through institutional ethnography? And I actually ended up going back to a bunch of like linguistic, sociolinguistics, Manny Shegloff um, and that stuff where they were really, really big into institutional talk, right? How do institutions sort of function, right? It's more, in, in some ways I ended up being a little bit more sociologically oriented in some ways because the, those are the people who really look at institutions. So that's how I sort of roundabout ended up. I mean, I've been in, you know, fights, sound study seminars and stuff like that. So I had this sort of notion in the background that that was a possibility and it certainly was how it, how it ended up. So anyway, that's the long winded story about how I ended up writing about this stuff. Yeah, no, that's great. And your mentioning of sociology at that point is super interesting to me too, especially on like the institutional analysis level. Um, I've been looking at some of Eleanor Ostrom's stuff on institutional analysis and have been interested in this as well. I, I, another question I kind of have is, and it, it's a odd one, I guess, is, but when you started, so with your dissertation, and it's kind of like you got like, kind of pushed into it very quickly there towards the end. Um, did you, I mean, by where we're at now versus where we were at in 2008, did you have any feeling about this was the direction of how campaigning would go with sound, at least in terms of, because um, I know you talk a lot about in your book in terms of listening and using sound and noise as power. Um, and I'm just wondering if you kind of had the idea that this was where it was going or did it catch you off guard or? The Trump campaign in many ways was unsurprising. And I think I've gotten a little bit of blowback when I've, you know, when I've likened the Trump campaign to Obama's campaign because of the whole, you know, uh, how would I put it, like fomenting enthusiasm, right? And of course, everyone's like, no, 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 the Obama campaign was different. You're like, it's different because those were the people you like. In many ways, like I remember being at, um, you know, Obama rallies. I remember seeing, you know, Bill Clinton uh, come and speak in Austin right before um, the Hillary Clinton and Obama debate. And, you know, a little bit of context here. Um, Texas uh, primary is usually pretty late in the season. And I think, I want to say at this point, Texas's primary was like, they were like the 42nd or 43rd state to primary. And nobody expected the, the primary to go that long. And of course, Texas was the last big state to vote. And um, so basically, whoever won the Texas primary was basically going to throw the switch between Clinton and Obama. And the, the debate was hosted on UT's campus, actually, in the Athletic Center. And so the entire campus was like nuts for like a week beforehand. And the, the party office was basically almost working 24 hours a day trying to get ready for this. So there was this like incredible level of excitement that was, that was happening. Um, and like being in that space, like 
being at these rallies, whether it was like Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton speaking like in public or being at the debate um, and then eventually being at um, uh, Invesco Field in, uh, in Denver, like the level of enthusiasm was incredible. Like I remember, um, uh, you know, being at Invesco Field when uh, Obama gave that acceptance speech, which if you go back to YouTube and watch it, it's still an absolutely incredible speech. And when he was announced, you could feel the stadium shaking, like 75,000 people going nuts. You don't really expect that at a political rally. I mean, Dave, have you seen a game at Invesco? I have several. Okay, so you know when, when the Broncos score a touchdown, like the stadium actually, you can feel it shaking, right? Yeah. Like, that's what you get got with, with Obama in 2008. And I don't think that's customary. Like, to, to my knowledge, this was the first time that a, a space that large had been used for the candidate's acceptance speech. Usually it's a basketball arena, but in this yeah. case, Obama's uh, popularity necessitated a much larger venue. So they reached out and got in Vesco Field, home of the Denver Broncos, approximately 80,000 seats. Yeah. So when you think about like the, the, the convention was scheduled for, was it, is it Pep, the Pepsi Center? Yeah. Right. Which is where the, um, uh, the where the Nuggets play. Yeah. Right. And that place was packed. And in, in, all right. So each state is in charge of credentialing for all of the events, right? So when I'm working the table at the Texas Democratic Party's headquarters, anybody from Texas who wants to get into the speeches has to come through the party. There were people who drove from Houston to Denver, which is a long drive, like on speculation just to try to get into Invesco Field. Um, for that speech. When you think about it, that's crazy. Again, it's, it is sort of a level of rock stardom. Like everybody knows, like you got that friend who's like, hey, you know, we're driving halfway across the country to go see our favorite band. And you're like, you've got tickets. They're like, no, nah, we'll get them. We'll get them. We'll get there. Right. That's what it was for Barack Obama. Like that's kind of crazy especially when you could stay at home and watch it on tv but people wanted to be there really 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 badly right so that level of enthusiasm i was surprised by when it happened but when you saw that with donald trump when you saw people actually like kind of rving to different trump rallies like that was less surprising to me because i'd seen that with barack obama and that level of absolute enthusiasm. If we sort of like step back a little bit, you see the exact same pattern repeated for both of them. And I know people who went to see Barack Obama three, four times, be just because you know they were out and about, they were traveling, whatever. And when they happened to go to Obama, be in a place where Obama was speaking, they would go and see him speak. Keeping in mind that when political candidates are campaigning, they're basically giving the same speech. I mean, I was watching the news hour the other night and I forget which reporter 
said, you know, most times when you're following a political candidate, after two weeks, you can recite their stump speech because you've heard it twice a day for, for two weeks, right? Uh, and I think Barack Obama ran a really fantastically disciplined campaign. And so even though that was the case, people want to go see him. So fast forward eight years, Trump doesn't do that because he doesn't write speeches. And so the notion of RVing around to see him is in, you know, all apologies, it's a little like following fish, right? You never know what you're gonna get from show to show. That's why you go. So I, I kind of understand that. Like I understand how somebody who was into him could develop that level of connection to him. Yeah, I was just thinking about like the way you were describing the Trump there and the fan, the kind of fandom aspect was, you know, there's even like this material culture aspect that came with it with the MAGA hats and like Donald Trump pins, which is always in campaigns. But, you know, there was even counter campaigning from, you know, Democrats with making like the Trump toilet paper kind of <laughs> stuff, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really good point too. Like it's, I like the fish example. That's funny. I'd never thought about it that way. <laughs> but th this has been interesting to me. So I've spent some time thinking about because, you know, everything I've written looks a very particular way about um, looking at campaigns. And this campaign has been very different, partially because of COVID. But I think there's something else that's missing. One of the things that I find missing from Trump rallies now is that kind of the DIY aspect, right? When, when Trump was campaigning, like you would see people with the MAGA hats and the signs, but you saw people with their homemade Trump stuff, right? Do you remember that guy who had the, the suit that, that looked like a wall? Yes. Right? Like wall guy? Like I looked at that and I was like, oh, not a good look, but I appreciate the ingenuity behind it. Like you don't see that anymore. And I think that's one of the things for me that's really missing from the Trump campaign is that they have corporatized so much that people are literally like buying in with their money rather than buying in with their, with their time and ingenuity. And that to me is one of the reasons why I think some of Trump's numbers don't look as good because that level of citizen engagement is not, is not there in the same way. Like people were really dedicated the first time around. Now keep in mind, Trump collected fewer votes to win in 2016 than Obama did to win in 2012. Right, there were not as many votes cast in 2016 as there were in 2008. But even with that, like what you saw were people who really wrote themselves into the campaign. And what I see now is people buying themselves into the campaign. And when I think about 2008 and how much homemade Barack Obama stuff, I mean, when you think about, and uh, y'all might be too young for this, but Dave, you remember this, like the amount of sort of homemade Obama stuff that people did was incredible. I mean, you, when you think about the O, that famous thing, or, or the one with Barack Obama, Superman, like those were all 
like citizen made uh, products that were then sort of submitted to the campaign, right? And so that, that engagement, right? That very, very famous uh, blue and white portrait of Obama that says hope on the bottom, that was like a 22 year old graphic design guy at, I forget what college he was at, but people felt this real enthusiasm. And you saw that in 2016. I don't really see that right now. Well, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> I think this was one of the first presidential campaigns I can remember where the candidate actually marketed the campaign as a product to be mm -hmm. purchased, um, where political participation becomes an act, an act of capitalist consumption rather than you know, direct time-oriented engagement. Um, and that was a, that seems to me to be a shift. It, boy, it, it is a shift, but the other thing that I think about when we talk about branding, right? And I think Mick Jagger um, said something, uh, this, it was in one of David Brackett's readers, right? There's an interview with, with Mick Jagger um, pretty early on in the Stones' career. And the interviewer asked him about um, being about the music of the image. And Mick Jagger was really upfront. He was like, you have to be about the image because if people love you for your image, if you have an off album, you still have the image that they like. If people love you for the music and you release an album they don't like, you lose them as fans. One of the things I see with Trump, I mean, think about this. People who like Trump are called Trumpers, right? That's fandom right there. Right? That is a way of, of redefining yourself by how you consume, right? And to have your identity be, I am a Trumper, which might explain, um, and I think about, this is, uh, I guess, Dan Cahan. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's K-A-H-A-N. But um, he's a, a, like a, a cognitive behavioralist. And he's one of the guys, him and Drew Weston and a bunch of, have looked at how people find a way to support the parties they want to support, even in the face of blatant contradictions. And I think going back to the Mick Jagger thing, that's the notion of branding. Once you're branded, once you're attached to a brand, like you won't change. It's the notion like shoe companies are great with this, right? Once you're all in on like Adidas or Nike or something like that, you get one pair that doesn't fit quite right. You're not going to be like, forget about this, right? That's your brand. You're going to buy another pair. Or when it becomes like a core aspect of self, yeah. the cognitive dissonance becomes negligible to the identification you hold towards the party. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole thing about lifestyle branding, right? you buy a product that comes, becomes a lifestyle, like a way of thinking about yourself through the lens of this corporate product, right? And Trump has absolutely done that. One of the great things about your work is you connect sound to that process <laughs> and how sound becomes that mechanism which facilitates, even solicits that kind of branding to take place. I mean, I think, when you get really enthusiastic about something, right? When you have that emotional connection, that solidifies how you feel about something. And we, we, I mean, there's been a bunch of stuff written about like, 
why is your favorite band from high school still like your favorite band? And a lot of it has to do with this hypercharged emotional part of your life, which is high school. And you have music that accompanies that and it kind of hardwires into your brain like that's your thing, right? And when I was teaching uh, History of Rock uh, a year ago, you know, we, we did a class on dad rock and it was amazing the stories that a lot of my students told about listening to music with their fathers, right? And even like bands that they don't like and they don't listen to, there's like one or two songs that they always associate with like, you know, road trips or like going to soccer practice or just sort of little innocuous things like that that is just hardwired into their head to have this really emotional attachment to it, right? And so um, uh, I wish I could think of the neurologist. You say, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so the more stimulus you have, the more likely that these things are gonna be connected. So when you have Donald Trump and you have the sound that he makes and the sound that you make, right? Applause is a really, really powerful mechanism. And part of it is it's one of the most intense multi-sensory things that we do, right? Because it's auditory, it's visual, it's physical. We think about concerts, right? How many concerts have we been to where we're like, yeah, we're yelling, screaming, we're dancing, we're applauding. And that experience just gets burned into our heads. And every time we think about being in the audience, we kind of get this like happy feeling, right? Because it's like, yeah, this is amazing, right? Political rallies. And I think, you know, being, being in the audience for Barack Obama is very much the same thing. With people at a political rally, you automatically have this connection. Everyone's there for the same purpose. So everyone's sort of automatically friendly because you're all there for the same reason. So you get kind of good vibes already. Candidate comes on, the way speeches are formatted to give you a little bit of content and then, you know, the big line and everyone cheers, you move on to the next thing, right? And you get this um, stimulation over and over again where you're, you're applauding, you're, you know, giving people fist bumps and dap or whatever, you're hugging people, you're hearing music, Stevie Wonder comes on stage and plays and everyone goes wild. And it's a really hyper emotional experience. And that was one of the things that it just, it automatically triggers you to feel good about this person and to be emotionally invested in them. Yeah. And I think too, like, that's one of the things like you were talking about that's like super missing from this election as well, right? The, the Trump campaign rallies are smaller. They're spaced out a little bit more. Um, and from the Biden side, right, they're, they're pretty much nothing yeah. <laughs> Com comparatively because of, you know, the pandemic that we're in. Yeah, just one thing on that. I've been kind of curious because Biden, apparently, I don't really know, but they said he was spending a lot of time on Zoom talking to small groups of people. I don't know about Biden, but I know that they've also, the campaign has been like, you know, contracting other people to do this like the parks and rec town hall mm -hmm. that happened recently and i think that's one of the ways they've been trying to combat the issue of rallying i guess yeah i kind of like i am curious right because when we think about campaigning um and i remember being with jim spencer who 
probably is retired by now, who was a, a national political consultant who would, you know, did, did a lot of, tended to do blue campaigns. But when I met him in Houston and he was doing a workshop in Houston, he had just come from Boston and was just about to go to Wisconsin to do these sort of campaigning workshops. And his presentation, he said, you know, something like 75% of people spend less than 22 minutes a week thinking about politics. 14% uh, of people um, spend half an hour a day thinking about politics when it's like three months out from the election. Then you have that remaining 11% of people who think about politics all the time. And he was like, your job early in the campaign is to find those 11% of people because they tend to be people whose opinion matters to other people around them. I think he called them local authorities. We would think about them as influencers right now. But the kind of people that when you have a question about politics, you're likely to follow their opinion. So, you know, going back 30 years uh, to, to when print was the thing, when we think about like the Times and the Post and the Guardian and all that sort of stuff, it would be people would actually go to these op-ed pages. We think about the way that like, you know, I'll read Paul Krugman or I'll read David Brooks or something like that to see, okay, so, you know, what do the lefties think? What do the more conservative folks think? That kind of thing, right? And so that seems to be what Biden's, what Biden did for a lot of the summer. And right now, we're about to find out how effective a strategy that was. And keeping in mind that we are in a world of social media where even if you don't really care about Joe Biden, maybe there's somebody in your community who you do trust. And if he was, if his campaign was able to find who those people were, talk to them over Zoom and convince them that, hey, if somebody asks you a question, here's, here's the, the, the talking points or here's the reasons why this policy works better. Um, and it's a much more rational, if you will, way of campaigning. I don't think we're ever gonna go back to that model, but it might be a different model for how to start a campaign. When you look at people, you know, like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, um, Kirsten Gillibrand, people who had a really hard time getting people to know what they were about. I kind of wonder, it's like, hey, you're starting out this campaign, you don't have a lot of money. Maybe that's actually a better way to go. If you can get a half an hour of 10 people who are really influential and they matter can you convince them to really think about your platform in depth? I mean, I think every candidate that can is gonna try to have like a Trump or Obama style rally with 15,000 people. Make no mistake about that. If you can do that, that is the, the most compelling thing you can do, both for the people in front of you and for media, right? When you, when, campaigns are getting an average of you know 30 seconds of news coverage a night what do you want that 30 seconds to be you want that 30 seconds to be you delivering maybe two really good lines in front of an audience that's like Wah! right 
that's what you want people to see because enthusiasm is contagious, even if it's on TV. But before you can get to that point, maybe there's a way in which the, the technique that Joe Biden used might actually be somewhat effective and certainly more effective than I think we're giving it credit for right now. I think a lot of people are like, well, Joe Biden just hibernated for the summer. And it might turn out that his campaign, you know, for all of its sort of lack of dynamism, may have actually been the right group of really seasoned older, older campaigners to execute something like a basement campaign for five months. Yeah. So in terms of things that are kind of different now too from the last election, I'm really curious about your thoughts on the first debate. Um, and especially because I know you talk a lot about noise and power in your book, and <laughs> listening and hearing and all these kind of things. And we saw in this first debate, this crazy use of sound um, and, and overpowerment as was the attempt, I think. Um, and even like you were talking about in social media, now we've got the meme of, will you just shut up, man? <laughs> and all this stuff. So I'm really curious about like, what your reactions were to this, because there were, I think one of the things that's interest me is the media seems to, or at least what I've seen has been saying, you know, this was a bad look for Trump. This was a bad look for Trump, that kind of thing. But it seemed to me that it wasn't too different from the debates with the Clinton campaign, where every time in that town hall, she tried to say a sentence, it was wrong, no, that kind of thing. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are like about how that has played out. All right. So, so this is, in, in some ways, it's two different questions, right? The one about Clinton, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think it is the truth that Americans have a lot more tolerance for men speaking over women than they have for men speaking over other men. Like, first and foremost, you have to acknowledge that what Trump did with Biden was probably a little more exaggerated than what he did with Clinton, but was basically the same thing. And people were like, oh, that's fine when it was with Hillary Clinton. One, because obviously she's a woman. Two, because she's not a woman that was particularly well-liked, right? Had he been doing that to, um, I would say Oprah, but that's a whole other thing. But, but another woman who was sort of universally well-loved, I think that would have been received differently, right? As far as what happens with Biden, so I believe the guy's name is Chris Richardson. He's a, a culture writer for the Washington Post. And in 2016, he wrote a really, really great article on Trump's playlist in the Washington Post, where he talks about being at a rally, I think in Michigan, and the music that was played into the parking lot of the stadium before the, the rally started. It was like a 45 minute repetitive playlist played at ridiculous volume. And, you know, he goes through analysis of it, you know, describes the event and everything. It says the punchline is in Trump's America, you either have to shout to be heard or you have to be Donald Trump. And, I, I, I was like, that is an absolute stroke of brilliance. Like that to me was one of the most 
prescient analyses, not just, not, not just a great analysis of the moment, but a really prescient analysis of what the last four years would look like. I mean, that was one of the things about Donald Trump is like, it actually makes sense for him to lie because the lie gets covered by the news and the correction doesn't, right? There's a kind of gamesmanship in that. Um, and so, I mean, one, the, the, I thought the debate was infuriating, right? I just, I, it, it drove me absolutely bonkers. And the, the notion of talking over somebody, to me, if, if we think about sound as metaphors, right, that is one of the best metaphors from what has happened um, in American politics. I mean, Dave and I are old enough to have grown up in a slightly different era and actually seen the sort of Gingrich changeover where just like, you know, the bifurcation of America. Rick Perlstein says it starts with Nixon. I think for me, it was the, the late 90s with, you know, Trent Lott, Tom DeLay, Newt Gingrich, and the notion that you just play for power. And if you're not with us, you are a horrible, horrible person. And 9-11 really just submits that notion where like, if you're not with us, you're against us. And so when I look at what happened in that debate, what I see is like Donald Trump appealing to a certain sort of masculine ethos, right? The, the, when we think about masculine sound, the most masculine sound is not what it says, but what it does. And what it does is it erases whatever you were saying. Um, Don Ida, when he in his book on um, voice and listening, uh, and I can't remember his terminology, but his terminology about when sound actually interrupts your own inner dialogue, when it's so loud, uh, he uses the, uh, the, the metaphor, it's so loud I can't, hear, I can't hear myself think. And I think that like the most masculine sound is sound that does that, right? It totally disrupts your train of thought, which is I think basically what Trump was trying to do was to, to, to make Joe Biden like bumble and seem rattled. Like, I think that was, that was actually what the game plan was. Um, and the notion of what you say doesn't really matter, but what you say over somebody else is actually what matters. And that kind of confrontation. The other guy who talks about this is Julian Enrique. I'm not even sure how to pronounce his last name. I think it's G Julian Enrique. It's H-E-N-R-I-Q-U-E-S. Um, teaches at Goldsmiths, I think. He uses the term sonic dominance. And when he writes about it, he's writing about it um, in terms of uh, Caribbean sound systems, right? And the notion that like, I don't know how much y'all know about Jamaican sound systems, but you're talking, the biggest ones are almost a million watts, which is horrifying to think of. But he was like, you know, the notion of you occupy space with two pickup trucks worth of speakers. And once you turn it up, like you own, you know, a two or three square blocks worth of sound because nothing else can possibly happen 
in that area besides what you want to happen in that area, which is uh, if obviously if, if you are the selector, that's high pressure, right? Because you have to, everything that happens, you have to make it happen. But that term of sonic dominance where like everybody in that area, like you control. And I think when we hear uh, Trump talking over Biden, it's something similar where like, if you can talk over your opponent, you own the debate stage. I love that analogy. And when you bring up this kind of hyper-masculine imperative of dominance, it becomes particularly clear. I mean, we know that the, the, the torturous use of music has very little to do with the selection of the music, the genre, or even the volume, but who has control over it. Mm-hmm. So if we think of sound as a mechanism for controlling environments and the, the, the imperative of control being a hyper-masculine one, then it makes perfect sense why Trump would have taken this approach to try and assert a hyper-masculine dominance over the political stage using his voice as that weapon. Yeah, there is a kind of logic to this, right? And I think um, I'm, I'm mixing up all my names now, but there was a guy who'd worked with Trump who um, who's interviewed, I think on the news hour, who said, you know, Trump's whole thing is that life is a zero sum game. I have to win, somebody else has to lose. And so if you take that notion and you just look backwards on what we've seen in the last five years, that pretty much sums up everything. And sound is so much a part of that. I mean, when you think about his rally strategy in 2015-2016, fly into an airport, do your, your rally at the hangar, and then fly out. Um, there's a kind of um, like brute efficiency about that. We're like, basically it's like a photo op. You get there, the setup is really quick. You've got 10,000 people there. They go nuts. You record it, you edit it down to five minutes of really convincing footage. You upload it, go to the next site. And what you're doing is you're just capturing his kind of, it's almost like every day you're releasing a new greatest hits. And that's all it is. Cause like, I don't know if, if you, if you go and you look on YouTube, a lot of these speeches are there in small, like uh, small chunks. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get a 60 minute speech from a hanger in, in Indiana, you're going to get a five minute highlight reel. And that's kind of how the campaign went around the country, especially because he did a lot of second cities, not even second cities. I mean, they're not even cities, right? That's kind of what it is. And so these little tiny places that got overwhelmed. All right. So Chris Blackwell, the guy who founded Island Records and who brought Bob Marley to England. So one of the things he did is he would book Marley into places that had big West Indian communities in clubs that were really small. And so either there would be a line around the block to try to get into the club to see Marley or all hell would break loose and it would be on the front page. And so what he did is he did Marley's first 
British tour like that. Got a ton of headlines, got a ton of photographs of all these people waiting to see Marley. The next time he brought Marley to England, he was booking five and 10,000 seat theaters. If we look at what Trump does in terms of these small and medium sized places in America, that's exactly what that looks like. Right, you go ahead and you're, you're Donald Trump. Like you have been a fixture of American tabloid life since the 80s. And you're appearing in like Janesville, Iowa. Yeah, like a lot of people are kind of gonna come out to that. And you've got the pictures, you've got the headlines, you've got everything all at once. Yeah, I wanna come back a little bit too to some of this discussion earlier about the the kind of like sound and his ability to like manipulate these spaces too. And it's especially because in your book, you talk about this um, with just thinking about noise and like, you know, we have Atali who's got this whole theory of noise. And for all that is problematic about Atali, there is still some great things that are oh, yeah. in there, right? And I think one of the things that I love about your work that you pull out of that is the ability and the power of listening. Um, and so I want to like hear more about your thoughts too, about like the choice to go to these rallies and listen, the choice to turn on the TV and listen to the debate in and of itself is a kind of power and like choosing to listen to, if you're thinking about a signal noise way of Biden as the signal through the noise of Trump kind of trying to overpower. So yeah, just okay. listening in general. So, um, the guy for me who has actually written the most compelling stuff about listening is um, um, Jean-Luc Nancy, right? And one of the things he says about listening is, is listening is an active process. He's like, when you're listening, like to, to be truly listening is to be decentered as a subject and to put yourself in a position of being changed. Um, and so for him, he, he uses the metaphor of resonance, right? Like all of our bodies resonate in particular ways, right? And everybody's body sort of resonates differently. And so what he does is he takes that and he sort of puts it on to listening and like, rather than a kind of phenomenology where you have two objects that confront each other, we'll think about Merleau-Ponty is very much about objects in confrontation. Um, Nancy is a little bit more Heideggerian where it's like objects integrating, right? And, and that's literally what Nancy is talking about with like when your resonance, when you're truly listening your resonance and the resonance of what comes to your ears change each other. And so when you go to a rally and you decide to listen, right? for Nancy, like you cannot help but be changed. And there were like, I remember reading this in, in 2016, a bunch of journalists writing about um, interviewing people before and after Trump rallies. And they were very much looking for people who were on the fence, like people who had supported, um, you know, John Kasich or Marco Rubio or one of the other sort of mainstream Republicans and really didn't like Donald Trump. 
And then when Trump becomes the candidate, they're like, well, let me see. And they go to rallying. Of course, they come out and they're like, oh, I absolutely believe it. I'm all in. Now, from a purely textual standpoint, if you had talked to them and you're like, cool, and then you got a transcript of Trump's stump speech, you look at this and be like, what in this speech would have convinced you otherwise? But it's not about the speech. It's like this really charged atmosphere that like, if you were willing to submit to listening, you are going to be changed. Um, I had a couple of, so when I was teaching a class, oddly enough called listening to an election in the, in the fall of, uh, 2016, or no, take that back in the winter of 2016. So right, like literally my first class was a few days before the Iowa caucuses and Bernie Sanders came and spoke at Marist and I talked to a couple of my students, um, I guess when we had class after the rally. And, you know, two of them were like, you know, big into Bernie and two of them were a little on the fence. All four of them were like, oh, hell yes. Like being in that space is transformative. And if you are willing to listen, it will change you. Now, that's not always for the better, right? You could go to a Trump rally and come back and be like, this is awful right? You could have that kind of a reaction as well. And I think, again, going back to Julian Arik's work, like the notion of like submitting yourself, like for him, if you go to one of these, you know, outdoor um, dance hall things, you are submitting yourself to the, to the sound system, right? My notion is that if you're going to a Trump rally, you are quite literally submitting yourself to Trump, right? And, and you are going to come away from that experience changed. And at this point, most people who are gonna go to a Trump rally are willing to be changed in that direction, right? As far as like the signal and the noise, um, one of the things that I, you know, that I was sort of mulling with this is, you know, the idea that noise is what matters in a campaign, right? And there's all different kinds of noise. And when we think about noise as the amount of chatter that gets generated, I think one of the things that the Trump campaign has lost this time around is that they, it, it doesn't help when the, when the candidate is the one generating the noise. It's much more effective when the noise that gets generated is from people who are enthusiastic, not the candidate themselves. And I think Trump actually hurts himself by um, giving all of the all the sound bites, bites and all the talking points. And you could see early on when Trump was campaigning where he would actually pick up cues from the audience and sort of ad hoc roll them into his speeches. Like lock her up. It's nobody in his campaign thought of that. That literally came from the audience. And I'm trying to remember there was a journalist who, who did the 
absolutely painstaking work of finding the first incidents of that. And she traced it back to a rally where somebody screamed it. Donald Trump picked it up and boom, becomes part of the campaign. Right. And so that is an example of when like part of the, the efficacy of campaign noise is when it comes from outside the campaign. And I think the Trump campaign has lost that this time around where they wanted to literally, we're talking about this dominate every part of the campaign, but part of what makes campaigns so effective is that they bring all these people in together and you can feel like you were part of it. And once people feel like they're part of it, they're invested and they feel good and they tell their friends and all that, all that got knocked out this time around and the campaign could never figure out how to do that again without all of the live appearances that he'd done before. So they were, they could not switch gears into um, another way of, of getting people to self-create hype about the campaign. That's a really great point. Do you remember Drill Baby Drill from the McCain family? <laughs> yeah. That's the thing that came to my mind, same kind of thing. All of this speaks to Jihad Rossi's amazing work where he was talking about ecstasy in Arab music as being based largely on a feedback loop mm -hmm. between audience mm -hmm. and performer, creating a participatory environment where everyone becomes mutually influenced by the event, uh, arriving at uh, you know, flow states and ecstasy states. Um, it's that dialogue that you say that takes place in the environment that largely elicits those ec ecstatic feelings. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because when you think about um, Tarab, but also about um, uh, um, Kia, right? The ideal audience is one that is very interactive. I mean, um, Warren Sanders, who was a Kia singer who lived up in Boston, used to, it, for class, he would play a tape from the 80s, I think, of his teacher. And of course, he was sitting in the front row with the teacher with a tape recorder. And the guy next to him is literally talking to his teacher while his teacher is singing. And he was like, you would think that this would be annoying, but, and I can't remember his teacher's name. He's like, he loved this guy because he was so tuned in that like, there was like literally a really active dialogue happening while he was performing. And this is ideal when we think about um, uh, Jonathan Shannon stuff about, about, playing, about playing music in, in, the, um, in, the, in the tea house in um, Lebanon. It's the same way, right? Like the audience has to feel like they're invested in the performance they're not just this passive receptacle, right? And, and I think that, that that's, I think it's a very human thing. I think all of us, I mean, when we think about, again, uh, shows that we've been to, like it's great to see Pink Floyd at Foxborough Stadium. Cool, great. But you think about like basement punk shows where there's no stage, like everybody is on the ground, it's gross, it smells like body odor, everyone's jumping around, people falling into microphone stands. But there's this kind of energy about that that's really difficult to capture in a larger space. And when we think about um, people who have been like diehard parts of the punk scene, 
that's one of the things they talk about is that the audience and the musicians are like the same, right? There's this like um, constant interaction that is really intensely meaningful. And I think that Barack Obama in 2008, Trump in 2016, managed to capture that in really big spaces. When we think about uh, the 2008 acceptance speech that, that Obama gave in Invesco Field, I guess 75,000 people, but every single person there felt like they were part of this great historical moment. Right? And, I, and I don't doubt in 2016 that every Trump supporter felt like they were part of this great historical moment. Like they were active participants in making history. And that's a really powerful sentiment. And the need to sort of recreate that, I think that my feeling is the Trump campaign has not been able to do that. I don't think the Biden campaign has either. I don't think that, I won't say enthusiasm because I have a feeling that voter turnout is actually gonna be pretty robust this time around. But um, all these polls are getting mixed up in my head. But even out of likely Biden voters, all right, so these are registered Dems who told the pollster that they were likely going to vote for Biden. Only like 35% of them were enthusiastic about it, right? That tells you something right there. And, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not upset about that. Maybe I think it's okay to take some of like the, this like, sort of overblown rock star enthusiasm out of politics and just like maybe talk about policy for a couple of minutes. It's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think it's okay to turn the volume down a little bit. Says the sound study scholar. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, man, I, I love sound, but I love Morton Feldman as much as I love Wagner. Maybe more. I feel probably more than I love Wagner. Right, there, there is a point where, where things that are very delicate have a place. And maybe in politics, there's, things, there's room for things that are more delicate and nuanced. If there's one thing missing from this election cycle, it is delicacy and nuance. Yes, sadly. I, I do think like we are in a transformative moment, I think some of the lessons, and I, this is across the board, right? I don't think education is going to be the same after this, right? I don't think work is going to be the same after this. I don't think politics is going to be the same after this. I think what we have experienced between the bifurcation of America is unsustainable. What we have experienced with COVID has taught us a lot of really key lessons about the values of it, what an institution is and how politicization of science and healthcare and education is actually a really, really horrible thing. And I'm still waiting for some people to come around to that notion. Uh, I don't think politics should be the Burger King your way right, right away kind of thing. Um, I feel like the folks who are in this mode of radical transformation right now um, 
hopefully will pull back a little bit because I think radical transformation right now sounds great when it's your team and sounds terrible when it's somebody else's. Um, and I think that obviously there are many, many things that need to be addressed right now, right? When we think about um, policing, law enforcement, the environment, um, the state of education, obviously, the COVID thing, all of these things need to be addressed now. But that there needs to be universal buy-in. Everybody has to be like, yes, everybody needs health insurance. How do we get there? Right, that, that kind of thing. And so I, I think that this moment is a little bit of a sort of hold your breath and hope for the best outcome type of moment. And, and I wish, I think a lot of people right now are wishing they were clairvoyant and could see the future. So either they could finally exhale or plan to emigrate to Canada. Like one of those two things, <laughs> I think we're all in like, man, I wish I could just wake up in a month and know what's going on, right? Um, and I think this is one of those things where, you know, you mentioned Atali, right? Where his idea that like, if you listen hard enough, you actually hear the future. And I think that, for me, was one of the most profound things about reading, going back to that book, um, you know, for the dissertation, for the book, is that if you listen to what's around you, you will hear the makings of what will happen tomorrow, right? And Bernie Krause, um, you know, we think about his stuff with uh, environmental He's like, before you can see environmental degradation, you can hear it, right? I think what we need to do is really listen hard to what's happening right now because what the world that we're all going to wake up to on November 3rd, like, is sort of beginning to resonate right now. And it's really important to hear the, you know, the communities that need help the policies that need to change, um, what the rest of the world is doing. I mean, while we haven't been, while we've been wrapped up with who talks over who in the debate, like Belarus and Kyrgyzstan are turning inside out right now. These are really important. And I think that like opening up your ears and hearing what's going on is the is the one thing that will get us into a better november 3rd is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. It's engineered by Amanda Luke with support by Kyle Fulford. Do you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.